Good morning and welcome into the house of the Lord this morning as we have gathered together once again as God's people to hear from our God through his word in keeping with his promises to continue to speak to us and to reveal to us his glory and our need, his provision, even in the Lord Jesus Christ. A few announcements before the call to worship. Uh, Jake Terpstra has completed active service, is back with us again, so we're thankful that he is with us once more, and uh, we're Encouraged to see him here and pray that uh, his transition back into this area would be a smooth one. You note also in the bulletin that Susan Wilson is with us from Past Pregnancy Care Center. You see all of the, uh, the comments there as to what they do. Um, she's going to be giving, pre- uh, giving a presentation after the morning service, I believe, in this room right over here in the adult Sunday school room. So you are encouraged to stay for that, uh, to hear more about Pass's work in Uh, in the South Chicago area. We also have baptism this morning, and uh, we want to welcome those who are visiting for that. Uh, Others may be visiting for other reasons. May the Lord uh, richly bless us as we've gathered together. We witness the baptism of Owen James Boltema and Emmett Lee LaRue. was talk, uh, looking at a book this week on worship, and there was a comment in the book that I think is very important for us as we think about what it does it mean to worship and the call to worship. The author said this, the worship we are called to is far too important to be left to personal preferences or to whims. It is the pleasing of God that is at the heart of worship. He goes on to say, our modern worship needs the philosophy of the second glance, an ongoing attempt to make sure that all that we do in worship gatherings is to God's glory, to his honor, and according to his will. Now, what is pleasing to God? It says, he says there, it is the pleasing of God that is at the heart of our worship. What is pleasing to God? Without faith, it is impossible to please God, the writer of Hebrews says. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So we come this morning to earnestly seek him. I'd ask you to stand as we hear the call to worship this morning from Psalm 147. The psalmist says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beast their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Congregation, in whom is your help? He greets you this morning. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever 
and ever. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to number 95A. Number 95A, O come before the Lord our King, and in His presence let us sing. We're going to sing the first three stanzas, the first three stanzas of 95A.
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In obedience to this command, the church has always baptized believers and their children. Let us hear the promises of God that are confirmed in baptism. The Lord made this great promise to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Generations later, though Israel was unfaithful to God's covenant with them, God renewed his promise through the prophet. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to give pardon and peace through the blood of the cross, the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. After Jesus had risen from the dead, the apostles proclaimed, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In God's providence, we'll be looking at that tonight, uh, the 27th Lord's Day of the Catechism, looking at infant baptism and how we see that promise carried on through from Old Testament to New Testament. I encourage you to, to return to hear that. Anticipating the fulfillment of God's promises, Paul assures us if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If We are faithless. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. These are the unfailing promises of our Lord to those who are baptized. Here also the teaching of of Scripture concerning the sacrament of baptism. The water of baptism signifies the washing away of our sin by the blood of Christ and the renewal of our lives by the Holy Spirit. It also signifies that we're buried with Christ From this we learn that our sin has been condemned by God, that we are to hate it, and that we must consider ourselves as having died to it. Moreover, the water of baptism signifies that we are raised with Christ. From this we learn that we are to walk with Christ in newness of life. All this tells us that God has adopted us as his children, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Thus in baptism, God seals the promises he gave when he made his covenant of grace with us calling us and our children to put our trust for life and death in Christ our Savior, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Him in obedience and love. God also graciously includes our children in His covenant, and all His promises are for them as well as for us. Jesus demonstrated this when He embraced little children and blessed them. The Apostle Paul said that the children of believers are holy. So just as the children of the Old Covenant received the sign of circumcision... Our children in the new covenant are given the sign of baptism. We are therefore always to teach our little ones that they have been set apart by baptism as God's own children. And because of that, they are to repent of their sins and embrace God's promise of forgiveness in Christ by faith. When God was speaking to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he said this, Hear, O Israel, Be careful to do all of the commands that I give you today, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the one that we worship. 
This morning as we consider that, we recognize in that the Ten Commandments. We hear the summary there, don't we? Shall have no other gods before me. Shall not worship in any other way than I have commanded. Shall not take my name in vain, taking it lightly upon your lips. And he says this, he goes on, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's the summary. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Teach them to your children. And talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They are to be before us forever dear people of God, to remember that we are the Lord's, that He has graciously delivered us in keeping with His promises to those who by faith are united to Christ. That is the promise of pardon, that if we are in Christ, all our sins are washed away, and in Him we are declared righteous. Well, as we prepare to administer this sacrament, let us ask the Lord's blessing in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that You will Never destroy us in our sin as you once did with the flood upon the world, but save us as you saved believing Noah and his family. You will spare us as you spared the Israelites who walked safely through the Red Sea. We pray that Jesus Christ, who went down into the Jordan River and came up to receive the Holy Spirit, who sank deep into death and was raised up as the Lord of life, will always keep us and our little ones in the grip of his hand. We pray, O Holy Father, that your Spirit will separate us from sin and openly mark us with a faith that can stand the light of day and endure the dark of night. Prepare us now, O Lord, to respond with glad hope to your promises so that we and all entrusted to our care may drink deeply from the well of living water. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This time we will ask the parents to stand. Brent and Kelsey Bolsima, uh, Boltima, excuse me, and Eric and Sarah LaRue, as we hear your response to these questions. Since you, Brent and Kelsey, and Eric and Sarah have presented this, uh, these children for holy baptism, you're asked to, follow, uh, to answer the following questions sincerely before God and His people. These are those essential questions. Do you acknowledge that our children who are conceived and born in sin and are subject to the misery that sin brings, even the condemnation of God, are sanctified in Christ. So, as members of His church, ought to be baptized. Second, do you acknowledge that the teaching of the Old and New Testaments, summarized in the articles of the Christian faith and taught in this Christian church, are the true and complete doctrine of salvation? Third, do you sincerely promise to do all that you can to teach these children, to have them taught this doctrine of salvation. Britton, Kelsey, what do you answer? Eric and Sarah, what do you answer? I'd ask you to come forward. Our Lord said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Owen James Boltima, I baptize you in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Emmett Lee LaRue, I baptize you in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Then to you, dear people of God, do you promise to receive these children, to receive them in love, to pray for them, to care for their instruction in the faith, to encourage and sustain them in the fellowship of the believers? What do you answer? As we respond then to this administration of the sacrament, we're going to sing together. There is an insert right on the back of the, uh, the form that we just read. By faith, we're going to sing those five stanzas uh, to, as we sing together.
hearts together in prayer as we go to the Lord. O Lord, our gracious God, forever faithful to your promises, we thank you for assuring us again in the sacrament of baptism that you forgive us and receive us as your children in Christ. Grant wisdom and love to the parents and to us all as we carry out the vows we've just made. We pray that you will guide our little ones throughout their lives, enable all of them to respond in faith to the gospel, fill them with your spirit, make their lives fruitful, uphold them in their hour of trial, and when Christ returns, let them celebrate with all the people of God your greatness and goodness forever, and the joy of your new creation. Lord, we know that this world before us is your creation. It is most wonderful, yet it is under the groaning of sin. There is so much before us that seeks to take our eyes off of you. We have just sung, we will walk by faith and not by sight. We believe the promises that you have for this world and for us and for our children. We know that there are many philosophies that have been used to try to understand creation, to, to set up systems, but you tell us how it all came to be. In the beginning, God created. As this truth is set before us this morning in all of its simplicity and profundity, we ask that you would help us to understand what that means for us from day to day. Even as it is introduced today, as we have heard it, We've been reminded of this call to love you, to live with you, to walk with you, to know you. May, we, may that be our priority in living. From eternity you are God, forever exalted over all things, higher than the heavens. Yet you are also with those who are contrite and lonely, to, re, to, lowly, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to, to show kindness to those who are contrite. For the wicked, there is no peace. They pursue peace looking in all the wrong places and seeking to establish it on their own strength. And it is impossible for with man, it is impossible to bring about peace. But with you, O Lord, all things are possible. There is peace between us and you through your Son, Jesus Christ, by faith. Therefore, we come to you this morning asking that you would give us that peace, that you would Be with us as we seek to live for you as a body of believers, as individuals that make up a larger body, that we're part of something more than just ourselves. When we think only about ourselves and only about our wants and desires, it's very easy for us to become frustrated and angry and impatient. And we look around and say, it's their fault. This is the problem. This is because of those people. But Lord, you are in control of everything, including every event that takes place in our lives, and you are teaching us that we're part of something bigger, that it's not that we live for ourselves, but to live is Christ, to die is gain. So our lives seek to make much of you, to glory in you. For those who are weak in body, we pray for your strengthening of them. We think of uh, Debbie Ohms, and we think of uh, George Zanstra. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would give them what they stand in need of. For healing mercies, we give you thanks for Scott and for Bill for those who are homebound, like Hank and uh, others, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would be near to them, Carol, and we ask that you would strengthen them in this day, that even as, you, as we ask for your prayers to strengthen us, that 
Simply because we're present doesn't mean that we will be strengthened automatically. We are to have ears to hear, eyes to see. We pray for that today. Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. That very foundational teaching, the wonders of this world and the place where we can find true fulfillment and satisfaction. We give thanks that Jake is back with us again after time served in, uh, as, as he's been in active service. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would be with him as he transitions back into this, uh, to this area. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would continue to watch over our young people as we've already prayed. Continue to guide them, direct them. We pray, Lord, that you would hear us in all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Turn our hymnals once again to number 242. These songs speaking of God's creation, Psalm 95, speaking of God being creator by faith, recognizing God is created, that we walk preparing to see Him in eternity. And then this, number 242, Father, long before creation, you had chosen us in love, and that love so deep, so moving, draws us close to Christ above. Still it keeps us firmly fixed in Christ alone. Speaking of that love that God has, in, by which God has called us and through which we live. Let's stand to sing those four stanzas, number 242.
We turn in God's Word this morning to Genesis chapter 2. Last week we looked at the origin of all creation, which is foundational for our understanding of the world. This morning we want to look at what God tells us concerning the crown of His creation, namely us, creation of humanity. What I want to get to is very simple. Man is not created by evolution. But there are a lot of, there are, men didn't come about by evolution. Maybe, maybe it's a clearer way to state that. But, I, but there's a lot of things in, in Genesis that we want to consider. Genesis is, is, is amazing in its simplicity. The statement is very simple. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Very simple. But the profundity of those words, the profundity of those words needs to be looked into. So we're going to spend some time working toward Genesis 2, verse 7. Genesis 2, uh, verse 7 this morning. We're looking at verses 4 through 7 of Genesis chapter 2. Let's consider God's word. There we read, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being." This is the word of God. People of God, if I asked you, where does the study of creation fall? What field of study does it fall into? What would you say? I think most people today, if you ask them, field of study for creation, well, that's easy, science. Right? We hear so much from the scientists today about origins, about how the world came to be. But that's wrong. And we see that right from the outset of the Bible. Creation is not a scientific issue. It is a theological issue. Now, I'll be so bold as to say all of life is a theological issue because we were created to be in relationship with God. So our very understanding of all of life is a theological issue. Theology is the only source from which we have any information about creation. There was no one there but God. We rely upon his eyewitness account. He tells us that he is creator. He says through the prophet Isaiah that we are to look up to consider the one who has created. Let me just, let me just read that for us. I think it's important for us to remember these words from Isaiah 40. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see... The Creator. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who spreads them like a tent, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. God. 
Verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, a way of speaking of all things, everything. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Study of creation begins with theology, the study of God, and he reveals himself then in his word, the Bible. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So says the writer of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Right understanding begins with taking God's word as truth. If we don't start there, as I said last week, we'll get further and further away from reality. Theology used to be called the queen of the sciences because it dealt with ultimate truth. It dealt with God, who is ultimate, who is eternal, who is the only everlasting God. Revelation of God in Scripture trumps all other sources of information and knowledge. For centuries, creation was not a scientific issue. It was a theological issue. And then arrived on the scene one Charles Darwin. Now, he was not the first to posit a theory of evolution. That happened already with the Greeks way back when. But he came on the scene when the uh, Western Europe in particular was beginning to think of ways in which they could be further and further removed from God. They didn't want God in the picture. They were becoming increasingly secularized, wanting to see the world on the horizontal and ignore the vertical. There was no connection, no need for religion. And in fact, this coincided with a gigantic scientific discovery. There were were scientific discoveries exploding everywhere in the 19th century. uh, Not vaccines, but but biological technology, all kinds of of, of other technologies dealing with illness, sickness, understanding where viruses came from, that there were viruses, and so on. And as that came to be, people thought, well, we're pretty smart. We, we, we don't need, this is, a, this is a closed system. We don't really need to look to anyone else to understand ourselves. We can simply look around and understand by our own reasoning. Charles Darwin came in right at that point. And so, though he didn't say something necessarily new, the time was ripe. The people were ready. They wanted to hear that this world could be understood without God because they wanted to be without him. John MacArthur says what what Charles Darwin did was to seize the subject of creation out of the realm of theology and to try and put it into the realm of human knowledge. This was and is a doomed enterprise because out of theology, outside of theology, we have no right understanding of the world. We need God's eyewitness account. Friends, the Bible opens with a pretty simple statement. (laughs) In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Not hard to understand. A child can understand the statement. It's very clear. 
And yet wrapped in that statement is the profundity of all that we see. God says, in the beginning I created, and then he begins to expound as to what that meant, breathing out, speaking, and then he begins to tell the story of man, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, telling the story of man. These are the generations. This is the beginning. This is the history of man as I've created him to be in relationship to me, and all that that means. Well, suddenly that simple statement at the beginning starts to require a lot more investigation, doesn't it? This is a huge subject. Genesis is, in its simple language, speaking of profound truths. And it is the foundation. It is the foundation. Let me tell you another, give you another example of that. Herbert Spencer, a non-Christian scientist, right about the time of Darwin, into the 1800s, dying early in the 1900s, non-Christian scientist, made a great discovery. His greatest discovery was what was called the five categories of, knowabil- of, of the knowable. And the science community went absolutely bonkers. They're like, wow, now we can make sense of the world. We've got the five categories of the knowable. We have all these categories He wrote this, all of creation can fit into one of five categories, time, force, action, space, matter. And the scientific community was just gripped by sheer wonder. And as others have noted, particularly John MacArthur, says, well, that's not all that big of a discovery. It's right there in the beginning. Listen to how he puts it. He says these categories that were supposedly discovered by Herbert Spencer are in the first first verse of the Bible. Here's how. In the beginning, time. God, force, created, action. The heavens, space, the earth, matter. It's all right there. Man's thinking, oh, I'm coming up with something really good over here so that we can break free, so that we can think our own thoughts and and come up with our own conclusions. And it's all right there in the very first verse. That simple and yet profound foundational book, Genesis. God created everything, and he gave us all the categories that exist. He created all things according to their kinds. I'm just going to start touching on evolution. We'll get there. All according to their kinds. There's not, a, there's not an evolution from one species to another, God says. I've created them according to their kinds to operate in pairs, the binary. I don't get too into all of that language that we hear today, but... The idea of pairs for the furtherance of the species, whatever species it may be. This includes man, as I've hinted at, but now state directly. Man created according to its kind, having male and female. James Boyce asks this question, why is the theory of evolution, which is so weak upon investigation, as popular as it is? And to summarize what he says in his commentary, it's this. Because evolution proposes a closed system which makes God unnecessary and makes man and and exalts man. Oh, now we understand everything. 
And I think he's right. I think that's the attractiveness of the theory, the theory of evolution. Because then we think that we can live without God. John MacArthur says, any serious study of the first chapter of Genesis indicates that it is sheer foolishness scientifically and utter unbelief biblically to impose on creation any kind of evolution. Evolution is not a reasonable explanation for the universe or life on earth in any sense whatsoever. It is scientifically impossible and it is biblically rejected. He makes another strong statement, as he's known to do. It is fair to say that anyone who rejects the creation account makes an assault on Scripture, an assault on the historicity of Scripture, the accuracy of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, and the authenticity of Scripture. It is no small thing to deny the creation account of Genesis 1. We could go so far as to say that the Bible itself stands or falls with the historical accuracy of Genesis chapter 1. If we cannot trust the creation account, then why should we trust anything else on the pages of Scripture? End quote. I think it's fairly easy to show that churches that start to play fast and loose with the opening chapters of the Bible will very often, if not inevitably, start to play fast and loose with other parts of Scripture, stating, well, we don't really know how to understand this first or opening stage, and so these verses, we don't know for sure how we should really understand them. They're not so very clear. Well, they're not so very clear because you've gotten away from your foundation, and you've started to walk on this tightrope over here, and you're falling on one side or the other instead of standing on the solid ground of Scripture. Well, then we come to the high point of creation, day six. God says, verse 26 of chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Last week we talked about a man was made to have relationship with God. His, his highest point is to worship God. He's created for worship, to be in relationship to God. Unlike the animals, he has a sense of himself. We call it a self-consciousness. He knows that he's incomplete in himself. He's searching all the time, looking for completion. God tells us here, he made man in his own image, in his own likeness. Male and female, he made them. And he indicates that they were made to be in relationship to him as he speaks to them, verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1. Sin leads man to look away from what he was created for, namely God. And the most important aspect of his life is to know God and to know him, to truly worship him. We're not mere animals of instinct evolved from lower species. We are those created by God. Before we look at that verse, I want to see the scene of creation As we come here to Genesis chapter 2, the scene of creation. Genesis 2 is not a second creation account. Some argue that. It is not. It is an introduction of the next major portion of the book of Genesis. That 
Hebrew phrase. I won't give it to you today because it's not going to be on the quiz. It means these are the generations of. This is the history of, and then it follows. And that's throughout Genesis. You see it in Genesis 2, 5, or 4. You see it in Genesis 5, 1. Genesis 6, 9. Genesis 10, 1. Genesis eleven ten, Genesis 25, 12. Genesis 36. Genesis 37. It's a, it's a recurring phrase. It's a new section of the book as it's being introduced. So here, this is not a second creation account. It's the beginning of the explanation of the history of the earth and its servant ruler, namely man. Genesis 1, story of creation. Genesis 2, intro of one of the elements of creation, namely man. One comments, Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is like the headlines of a newspaper article. Think about it this way. Like the headlines of a newspaper article stating that man was created in the image of God and given dominion. And then Genesis 2, 4 is the article under the heading giving the, given the details. So in this account, we have the creation, the location, the vocation of man and the relation of man. And then we will see in chapter 3 the probation of man. And we'll see how he falls and then the rest of Scripture speaks of the redemption of man. God says, this is your story. And this is how it begins. The details of man's creation or or at least the the statement of the creation, again, chapter 1, 27 and 28. The details of the scene, verse 5 of chapter 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land and there was no man to work the ground, it was then that God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life that man became a living being or creature. Now, if you've looked at the opening verses of creation, you might have a question right now. I thought plants were already created on day three. And here it says, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up when God created man. What? Did we get chronologically messed up here somehow? The Hebrew that is being used in verse 5 of chapter 2 is different than the Hebrew being used in chapter 1, speaking of the plants created there. This has to do with thorns and thistles and has to do with cultivated plants. These are plants that came after the fall. That's what Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us at the time that man was created, there were no thorns and thistles and there were no cultivated plants because man had not yet been there to work the ground. When God created man, there were no thorns and thistles, no cultivated crops. And it's interesting how he nourished the earth. And I want to spend a little time on this. It may, it may not interest you, but I think it should. Because God put it here for us to learn. These plants were nourished by God without rain through a spring from the ground. It says here, the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land. There was no man to work the ground. A mist, a spring was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. 
plants existed without rain, the need of rain, and without the need for cultivation. God put them there. He watered them, and they flourished apart from man's cultivation. God is the one who upholds all things. After the fall, man waits upon God for rain. We see that many, many centuries later. The point I want to make there is the dependency that we have upon God. We depend upon God for moisture. We depend upon God for our creation, for our sustenance, and that's what we see here, for the rain to fall, for the crop to be brought in. Let me just spend some time explaining what I'm talking about here. Pre-fall, God provided springs. Post-fall, God provides rain from the sky. Man has learned a lot about precipitation, meteorological study, and we think we know how this works, or we know the evaporation cycle, we know how rain comes. We even have such technology that we think, well, if we just seed the clouds, then the rain will come where we want it, when we want it. And what we've done is we've taken technology, which is a wonderful thing, it's, it's helpful, but th- thought to ourselves, hey, we can do this without God. That's the danger. That's where we cross the line. We don't want to ignore God and our need of Him. And often in Scripture, when rain appears on the scene, what we see is that God is either sending it as a shower of blessing or a curse. He's giving it or withholding it based upon the fact that He wants us to look to Him. Not to be trying to live apart from him. Leviticus 26, he's talking about blessings and curses. And he says something very interesting there. He says in the opening of chapter 26, if you walk in my statutes, observe my commandments, and do them, this is many years later now, the land shall yield its increase, trees shall have their fruit, I will send rains. The crops will Bear fruit. I will give you rain. Then later, verses 14 and following, he says, But if you do not listen to me, will not do all these commandments, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with these many difficulties, and you will sow your seed in vain. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. I will withhold the rains. Dependence. We don't make the rain. We can turn on our sprinklers. When I lived in Idaho, it was always interesting. There, they they wait wait for the snowpack. That's all they talk about, snowpack, snowpack, because they couldn't grow anything in the valley without irrigation. As long as there was snowpack, once it started melting, they didn't care if it rained again for the rest of the summer, as long as they had the irrigation to water the ground. And it was this very man-centered understanding. Well, if we, as long as we got the, the, the water coming down the irrigation ditches, we're fine. And it wasn't any, there was no talk about, well, who put the snowpack in the mountains to begin with? God is the one providing here in the garden. God is the one who continues to provide. And he wants us to note it in such a way, in such a dramatic way, from the sky that we might understand where we ought to look. God makes the world. God controls the world. 
we talk about climate change, and to be sure, the climate changes. We can't deny that. The question is, why? Why is it changing? What, we need to have good conversation about that. Why is it changing? One has this opinion, one has that opinion. We don't talk to each other. We just demonize the other side and say, oh, you don't understand, and they say, you don't understand. It's, this is the solution. The other side says, this is the solution. And not a one of them is saying, you know where rain comes from? You know where the climate who upholds the world? God does. We argue about who's got the right political system to fix it. We're going to fix the world. Really? Well, that's news to me. God certainly doesn't see it that way. Care, provision of creation. Absolutely. That's part of our call as those who are cultivating the earth. We don't deny that and say, oh, there's no climate. There's, there's no re- we don't have to take care of the earth. It'll take care of itself. No, that's, that's not being right. But neither do we say, well, we've got to do this, this, and this, or the world's going to just explode, and we will be the culprits. And God says, I made the world. I'm upholding the world. It is going to endure until the end of history. Friends, politics is this. It is our religion on display. What we believe then makes policy. And that policy says something about who we think is in charge. And everybody thinks they're in charge. And nobody thinks God is in charge by nature. Right? Naturally, that's not our bent. Our bent is, oh, no, no, no. We don't need any help. We're gonna, we, we got this. And God says, your problem is, you don't have this. I don't care who's in office. I don't care what policy you make. If it is apart from dependence on me, you're nothing but dust. And to dust you shall return. But we're getting ahead of the story. God upholds the world. Pre-fall and post-fall. He says, I don't care what part of history you're looking at. I'm the one who upholds it. And what do we do well to do? Worship. (laughs) Worship the one who has made all things. And obey his commands. And be good caretakers of what He has entrusted to us. And point it all to Him, because to Him belongs all the glory. Well then, we come to the creation of man. No weeds, no need to irrigate and cultivate. God's got this. God brought man into a beautiful world He created, and He upheld the man that He might live for Him. But listen to what verse 7 says. We'll spend a little time on this. We're not going to spend a lot of time this morning. We don't have a lot of time. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Genesis 1.26 tells us that God created man. Here we're told how? Out of the dust of the ground. Here's the foundational point. It's not out of an evolutionary process. It's a direct word command. God created. These beautiful babies baptized this morning are not from some pre-hominid organism. (laughs) It doesn't begin there. It begins with God. He creates and he says, 
and the offspring will come by my decree in keeping with my command according to my image. And tonight we're going to see that the promise that God says to his people that I will be your God and the God of your children after you, we're going to look at why that is still so today, why we baptize infants. It all begins in the dust. Our beginning is given. Creation is given. I don't care what gigantic corporation is going to spend billions and billions of dollars to change our way of thinking or what entertainment studio is going to, we're going to change the way we look at humanity and we're going to, I don't care how much money they spend, this givenness of creation is impossible to eradicate. You need a male and female to procreate. You need to follow the rules. I don't care how much money you spend to try to say, well, the rules don't apply to us. Your end is fruitlessness. The story that will last is the story of creation as given by God, beautiful and powerful. Out of the dust. Not the only place we read of it. Job talks about it. Job says it in several places in uh, in uh, in the book named after him. Describes the origin of man as the foundation from the dust. He says, your hands fashioned me. Remember now that you have made me as clay. Man is formed, is the point there. He does not evolve. Isaiah 29 likens man to clay being fashioned by the potter. Paul picks up on that imagery in Romans chapter 9 when he says... Who are you, the clay, to say to the potter who made you, why did you make me like this? There's a forming. There is a creation. This is not an evolution. When God gives the curse to man in Genesis 3.19, he says, from it you were taken. From the ground you were taken. And you will return to the ground. Man was going to die. Why? For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. read a story about a young boy, I think it's probably not true, but read a story about a young boy who was uh, up in his room, was looking under his bed, and hadn't looked under his bed in a while, saw a great big pile of dust under his bed, went running down to his mom. His mom, you got to come up here. There's a lot of dust under my bed. Either somebody's falling apart under there or something big is coming together under there. Well, he understood something, didn't he? That's where it all begins. Maybe not under the bed, right? But it all begins there because God says this is where it begins. Simple and yet profound. It it, it says it throughout the scriptures. Just one more instance. Genesis 3.23, the Lord God sent man out of the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. God says, I don't want you to miss this. Almost as though he's seeing what, where, where this would end up. Tower of Babel events over and over again. Man thinking, well, no, we know how this works. It works because we make it work, and so forth and so on. And God continually says, it isn't that. You can't make a name for yourself. Only I can give you a name. Only I can give you life. God breathed into man the breath of life, and he became a living being. His direct act creates man. And then remember what the scripture says about man's position. Created a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned with glory and honor to have dominion over the works of God's hand. 
early church father took note of those words in Psalm 8, and he said this, isn't it interesting that the psalmist speaks of creation? He obviously had Genesis before him. He knows who did the creating. He says, you created man. You didn't, man didn't evolve. You created man. And he says this. His statement is interesting. He says, you, you've, you've created him a little lower than the heavenly beings. He could have said, you've created him a little higher than the beasts of the field. But he doesn't. He, he says, you've created him a little lower than the heavenly beings because your, your origin is from heaven, not from earth. And, and the, the origin, your, your focus is to be on God who made you. We look above the heavens to the one who has made us, as Isaiah 40 says. Not around the world and say, that's what I came from. Oh, interesting. So as I study that and I become more like that, I'll become more human. No. As I study this, as I listen more carefully to God's word, I understand what I've been made for. Brothers and sisters, this is, these are simple words in Genesis, easy to understand, and yet so profound as we begin to look at them more deeply. What does this simple, easily understood statement about our creation mean for us? Well, it's a simple statement, but as we're going to see in our study of Genesis, it has profound implications for us moving forward. But we need to end here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for creating us. Thank you for giving us an upward focus. Thank you for giving us your word, which helps us to see rightly the spectacles of Scripture, for sin has caused us to be blind. And even upon our renewal, we fight against that sin. Even in our regenerated self, we still fight, wanting to live for ourselves. Help us, Lord, to see and to live according to that simple origin In the beginning, you created us in your image, in your likeness, that we might be worshipers of you. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Number 33 in our hymnal. Great psalm of creation. We're going to be singing stanzas 1, 2, and 5. With joy let us sing to the Lord, speaking of his creation and of his call to us to look upon him. Let's stand to sing number 33, stanzas 1, 2, and 5.
The offering this morning is for Pregnancy Aid South Suburbs. As again, I remind you, a presentation after the service. Let's pray for that offering. Heavenly Father, we thank you for life, and we thank you for those who work to protect life and to help those in need, those who are troubled, those who are scared and afraid, those who are uncertain about how to to give support and protection to innocent lives. We ask, O Lord, that as we give for past this morning, that you would bless the work of that that ministry, that as the counselors and as the, the leaders there give thought to the project in which they're a part, that they would point people to you, and that in you, people would find a solid foundation upon which to stand. Hear us as we give these offerings with these prayers, for Jesus' sake, amen. Please stand for the parting blessing. After after the parting blessing, we will sing the doxology, which is printed there in your bulletins. People of God, hear these parting words. May God give you deep faith in Him as Creator, living joy in Him as Redeemer, and abundant holiness in Him as the sanctifier of all believing sinners. Amen.